we are very excited to welcome everyone to the 20th episode of Boston Faith and Justice's podcast. Let's talk faith and justice. Slow round of applause. Uh, we're just really excited to have had the opportunity to do this podcast, to have the conversations we've had, um, to enter into some of the ministries and organizations that we've been able to engage with and share them with our community. It's just, it's been a really great experience and we're really excited to keep it going into 2024. And the conversation in this podcast that we'll um, be sending you on to is with the author of the book we read for our most recent book club. Um following Jesus in a warming world. We just, we finished the book club a couple of weeks ago and it was just such an amazing time of community that that group is, is still meeting to continue to wrestle with what it looks like to um, faithfully understand environmental justice and um, advocate in that arena. I was going to say advocate for climate change, but that's, we're not for that. That's bad. Um, so anyway, Ivy and Andrew and I are here and just um, having some conversations about both the book club. And right now when we're recording this, Thanksgiving is coming upon us. And so we're thinking about that. And we also just, again, at the time of this recording, we just had a um, our first ever staff and board retreat for Boston Faith and Justice. And it was just such a beautiful time of community. So some, those are some of the things we're thinking and talking about. And they really do tie into a lot of the ways that um, Kyle frames um, how to faithfully engage with climate change to um, a lot of community. So those are some of the things we thought we'd chat about before we send you on to the uh, interview with Kyle. Yeah, I think that was one of the greatest things that I appreciated from this most recent book club was the sense of community, how many people, you know, showed up week by week and was just really authentic, transparent about where we are, like in our journey of understanding climate action um, and environmental justice and the fact that we're continuing on to meet on a monthly basis, like not picking up the book and just putting it down, you know, forgetting about it, but continuous conversations that we're having. Um, I really, really appreciated that sense of community, not only at our book club, but at our most recent retreat. I'm a, I'm a lover of community and fellowship. And so I'm still very much on a high from our retreat this past weekend. Yeah, that was that was fun. We it was really neat. It was the first time our board and staff have been together in person. And that was really neat because a lot of the a number of the board members um and both of our current staff members um outside of me came on, you know, in a during or immediately post-COVID when everything is still like, you know, Zoom is it's still a great tool, but we just hadn't been together. And there really is, we kept saying over the course of the time, like there really is just something about connecting in person, um, at least having those touch points, just organic conversations happening that you can't really facilitate in Zoom as much as you might, you know, lean into breakout rooms or whatever. So yeah, it was just a really neat time. Yeah, it was great to to meet the board, especially having just come on staff. And uh, it was just a beautiful venue, uh, you know, because of a grant, because another reason um to get everyone together and to just collaborate um and in terms of like the book group one thing that the book group has, has got me thinking about even as we look at thanksgiving or kind of for me as i get together with um, some of my family it's kind of like how to bring up things or do i bring up things around climate change or justice work that i'm doing now uh, my family skews more conservative kind of more skeptical of different things um, I think in general, and I think the book offers you know, but at least some recommendations. Like he, he shares a story of his uncle who's a fly fisher and like, how okay. do you engage that kind of conversation? Like, and I think oftentimes we, we have this false dichotomy of like, I either need to say, well, what do you think about climate change or nothing? 
Yeah. And one of those sounds like too much. And then one of those sounds like too little. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think he does a really good job in the book um, of talking about how to have those conversations, which to me, the key was the relationship, right? It's like, it's not like, and I'm not saying this is never appropriate, but like, you aren't going onto a street corner and like speaking your truth, right? You're, you're trying to find a way in relationship to have honest conversations about things that matter to you. So not that that's easy. It's not like, oh, well, that's fine. But I think framing it that way, like this is a person I know, this is a person I care about. And we might have deep disagreements about things that are really important, but how do I find that way to just be in conversation and, and be open? I think one of my challenges is like, okay, I could try to have the conversation, but the conversation I'm trying to have is like me explaining why I'm right, as opposed to an actual conversation where we're, there's dialogue and listening. That's that's definitely a challenge that I have as I think about having some of these conversations over the holidays. I think another thing that can be helpful is, you know, kind of like an incremental understanding of it, right? Like Sarah Shin does talking about like racial awareness and kind of engagement. And she talks about how like, yes, the issue is pressing, but like incrementally moving people along is like very important as opposed to trying to jump three or four steps. Mm -hmm. um, and how like that makes a big difference because if we don't go back to kind of the common ground that we have with someone and realize like, hey, why did we go right and they go left? Yeah. Then we're we're way too far along and we're too distant to really like have a good conversation. But we can go back to that point of agreement and then kind of like build on that. That can make a big difference too. So Yeah, I like that. I think that's really helpful thinking about that as yeah, going back to the point at which there was agreement and you know, assuming you're in relationships with people, there would be that and and going from there. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Yeah, I'm interested. Um to we are my husband and I are hosting Thanksgiving this year and so you know don't have a smaller crew my you know our immediate family um but interested to see how I might weave some of those conversations into the course of the day and knowing that it may go in one ear and out the other of some family um but may resonate with others um so I have a there's a larger I guess spectrum of where my family lies in environmental issues. Yeah. I, yeah, I think the same, I have a, a little bit of a larger group, but there's, it's a spectrum. I just was before we jumped on this meeting, opening emails and an organization that I give to had like a free gift they sent. And I was like, sometimes the free gifts are, I'm like, what is this? It's in my email box, but it was actually um, like conversational cards that you could download and, you know, use to start conversations and have meaningful conversations around the dinner table or others. And I started reading through them and they were really interesting. So it made me think about, I mean, they were, you know, some of them were like, if you could only have three apps on your phone, what would it be? And some of them are more like thinking about the wider issues of justice. I honestly forget how they framed it, but I, it was an interesting array of questions. And it made me think about maybe having a more curated way to have some conversations like, Hey, let's sit down and play this game that would also just let us get to know each other in, you know, maybe like ways that we don't think about stuff. And also like our ages go from seven to my parents. Um, and so ways that the whole group, cause we do have a kid's table, um, but like can come together and have conversations because across generational conversations, I think can be really impactful and meaningful when you're intentional about like talking about things, I don't want to say things that matter, everything matters in some way, but you know what I mean? Like a little bit deeper conversations intentionally. 
So those are our, those are some thoughts and feelings we're having as we approach Thanksgiving. Again, maybe you're listening to this at another time, but I think it's always um, neat to be thinking about how we can engage in conversations with people to share what we value and find um, meaningful. So um, I hope that you will listen to this conversation with Kyle. And if you haven't read the book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, we definitely recommend it. It's been really impactful for us three here, um, but also the group um, that we brought it to. And I am pretty evangelical about sharing the book with other people. And so far, it's just been um, something that everyone I've shared it with has enjoyed and also been challenged by, which I think is just um, so important. So happy Thanksgiving or happy wherever you are right now. And um, yeah, enjoy the conversation. So we're so excited to have Kyle with us. Um, you guys, if you're listening, you probably have been following us a little bit in our journey. We just finished his book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, um, with our book group, which was, it's just such a rich discussion. It was, we're so thankful for the book. Um, thank you that you took the time to research it and that you have the gifts and abilities that you do to communicate. So we're so thankful that you're joining us for a podcast conversation. We thought maybe we could go deeper in some of the stuff we talked about and just share the work with a wider piece of the Boston faith and justice community through the conversation. So um, I'm going to dive in, but feel free to like, if there's things you want to like get to that we don't get to, feel free to take that road, take a left turn from the questions. We're very open and definitely want to hear what you have to say. Um, So I'll just start kind of where the book started and you shared a little bit of your journey, how you kind of came into environmental activism. And for me and a lot of people in our group, we talked about how that was really helpful because a lot of us grew up in faith communities where environmental activism was either not talked about or or maybe even sometimes vilified. And, and so it was really helpful to kind of see your journey. So will you just talk a little bit about that, just about how you got there uh, and where you where you came from? Yes. Yeah. So I, like you, Elizabeth, grew up in a faith community um, that was beautiful in so many ways. Um, I'm so grateful for it, for how it taught me to love Jesus and to... Um, mind scripture for wisdom and teaching, um, how it taught me, uh, faith, hope, and love, right? Like all of these beautiful things. Um, and at the same time, it gave me very few tools to help me understand what my faith had to do with the natural world around me. It kind of felt like, um, growing up, I was given a gospel that said, your faith and your relationship with Jesus kind of plays out on the stage of the human heart. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and it, it doesn't really expand beyond that except to, you know, share the good news of salvation with other people. Um, and I started to become a little frustrated with that, uh, when I went off to college and started experiencing, uh, and meeting people whose lives were being affected by environmental degradation, by pollution, by climate change. Um, And I was learning more about how people's lives were being impacted by these things in my classes. Uh, And and so I kind of felt this growing disconnect um, between the faith I'd been given and the world that I was encountering as I kind of left my home and went off to college and started engaging the world on my own terms. Someone who really helped me with that was my brother. I have an older brother um, who kind of had his own experience three years before me because he's three years older than me. Um, 
where he started asking similar questions. And he went off on a semester abroad trip to New Zealand. And the whole focus of the trip was to integrate faith and science. Um, and he came back totally transformed. Um, he announced to the family soon after he came home that he was a vegetarian now because of his learning and experiences. And I remember thinking how crazy that was. So I didn't know anybody like me uh, who had ever made that kind of a decision. I couldn't fathom anyone like me who would. Um, but he was patient and um, kind and, and helped kind of bring me along his journey. And he was one of the first people that articulated for me how my faith um, might inform the ways that I engage things like uh, environmental degradation, climate change, pollution. Um, and then when I went off to college myself, it, it just kind of accelerated. Um, and you know, I, I, I should say I've seen, I've seen progress in mm. my own faith community, in my own family. Um, this was, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago that I'm talking about. And a lot's happened since then. Um, my parents, to their eternal credit, have been curious um, and, and have learned and grown alongside uh, my brother and I uh, on this topic and others. So um, I'm encouraged by that. We, we have a long way to go. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, I have encountered in my work so many other people with so many mm -hmm. similar stories who have kind of come to a deeper understanding of climate change by way of, you know, lonely epiphany, um, who, who feel isolated, who don't feel like their faith community um, understands their passion and concern for climate change um, as people of faith. And so even though I've seen progress in my community, I know that there's a lot more progress to go. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful to name that, that what you've seen, we have seen progress in, in different places and to a different, to certain extents, but there's still work to be done. And people, like you said, kind of working this out in isolation. Um, yeah. And that's the world, right? The, the, the good and the bad. Um, but you touched on with something that I wanted to, to get to next as well. Um, one of the things I think you do so well in the book is make that connection for us. Mm. Not just hey, Christians are allowed to care about the environment. Um, you articulate a really important idea about our faith calling us to engage yeah. and the why, and you use you know scripture and stories and different things to do that. And at one point you say, and this this was just one of my, one of my many highlights, um, the truth is the big story of God's saving work in the world and our calling to proclaim its good news to all creation has everything to do with climate change. And um, our group kind of ruminated on that a lot and really mm. appreciated the way you articulated it. Um, so can you just maybe lay a little bit of the groundwork or some of the highlights of the ways in which you made that connection that that we found so compelling? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think one of the cornerstones of that foundation is Jesus' own words when he says to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as if their present circumstances and future prospects were your own. That's my paraphrase. Um, I like but, it. Okay, thank you. Um, but when, when I when I hear that command and when I hear where Jesus places that command, um, when he says, like, this is the whole thing, right? Love God, love your neighbor, 
going back to you know the ancient uh, Jewish Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Um, and then connecting that too to neighbor love. And Jesus essentially saying, you can't love God without loving your neighbor at the same time. These two are inextricably bound up together. And when I think about that, you know, the next question has to be like, how do I do that? Um, how do I love God and my neighbor um, in the way that Jesus describes? And I think part of the answer is we have to love the things that God loves. Um, and scripture makes it very clear that God loves justice. Um, we named our second son Amos, my wife and I, um, partly because uh, I love the prophet Amos mm -hmm. and I love especially the way that he delivers his message to Israel and essentially says, God hates your worship music. God hates your displays of religiosity. God hates your offerings um, because there's injustice in your community and you're not doing anything about it. God doesn't want any of that. God says he wants justice to roll down like a mighty water and righteousness like a never failing stream. Um, and we could go to dozens of other passages throughout scripture that point to God's heart for justice, where God says, the foundation of your relationship with me has to be just relationships with the people in your community and with creation. Because another thing scripture tells us is that God really loves creation. And I, I kind of make that case throughout the book. Um, pulling in scriptures that I think a lot of us gloss over or have kind of gone to sleep to, um, but trying to pull them out and say, what, what does this tell us about what God thinks of God's creation? Um, well, it tells us that God loves it for its own sake, independent of humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, it tells us that somehow, mysteriously, God's own incarnation in the midst of creation, taking on the stuff of creation and a human body, rising again in a resurrected physical body. Um, and, and Paul's words in Colossians and Ephesians and elsewhere about Christ reconciling all things to himself, somehow God's saving sights extend to all of creation. And God has an eternal destiny for all of creation, right? So God loves justice. God loves creation. Um, and when we look at how climate change is disproportionately affecting the poorest, the most vulnerable, those who have committed, those who have contributed the least to the problem and yet are least able to adapt, that is an injustice. We know what God says about injustice. Um, and when we look at the ways that human greed and exploitation is degrading the creation that God loves, and um, diminishing its ability to worship the creator as it was created to do. Um, I, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how to love God and love my neighbor without taking climate change and environmental degradation and pollution seriously. Um, because not only do we need to love the things that God loves, we also need to work for the conditions in which our neighbors can experience what Jesus came to offer. 
Mm. And Jesus tells us that that is abundant life. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. Um, everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom followed, right? There was healing. There was life. There was freedom. Um, climate change leads to conditions that are opposite of those things, right? It, um, it enslaves people. It oppresses people. Um, and if we're going to be serious about following Jesus who brought the kingdom everywhere he went, um, then we have to be serious about addressing the conditions that our neighbors are in because of climate change. Mm, yes. Um, yeah, all of that. Very well said. And obviously a lot of what you get into in the book and just so appreciate the way you kind of walk your readers and the people you're talking to along that idea, which again, for a lot of us is new, mm. um, these connections, but as, as you talk about it, uh, as you articulate it, just, it seems very clear and compelling. Um, and you mentioned one thing that I think, again, for people who are new to this journey, isn't a, a well-established fact, this idea how climate change disproportionately affects um, already vulnerable and marginalized communities and how important that is to our understanding of what our faith calls us to, but also just the realities of what climate change is doing in the world. Can you speak to that a little bit, either with, you know, examples or, or like a, an analysis of that? Like, how is that or why is that or what is that? Yeah, great, great question. A couple of reasons why that's true. One is because uh, we know that the effects of climate change are not felt equally around the globe, that there are parts of the world where um, the fingerprints of climate change are felt more strongly. Um particularly at the poles, so the North Pole, the Antarctic, the in the Arctic, and at the equator. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of people living in the Arctic or Antarctic, but there are a whole lot of people living around the equator. Um, and when you think about the countries that are in and around the equator, um, those tend to be countries who have been historically exploited by colonialism, um, who are... Uh, who have low GDPs um, and uh, who don't have a lot of resources to adapt. So this is one of the reasons why we talk about how poor and vulnerable people are hurt first and worst by climate change, because um, not only do they live in areas that are experiencing more extreme weather more frequently, like in and around the equator, they also um, have fewer economic, political resources to make them resilient to those impacts. Um, you think about heat as a, a significant impact of climate change. Extreme heat kills more people than any other natural disaster. Um, and you think about things like air conditioning. Well, who has access to air conditioning, right? Um, it tends to be people in wealthier countries. Um, not always people who are living in and around the equator. Um, so the, the thing when we, when we think about climate change and its impacts, um, we think about not only the physical manifestations of climate change, but we have to think about how those physical manifestations interact with socioeconomic determinants mm -hmm. um, and realities that make it harder for the people who are experiencing those physical manifestations of climate change to adapt and be resilient to them. Um, so so not, not only 
um, is climate change pressing hardest on poor people in poor regions of the world, the, those are also the people um, least able to adapt and be resilient to those impacts. So it's it's kind of a double injustice. Um, and and I think as Christians, like we need to be aware of that reality, and uh, we need to be concerned about that reality, particularly Christians in the West. Um, who are living in regions of the world that are relatively insulated from climate impacts, right? None of us are fully insulated, um, right. but relatively. And those of us who do have the money to pay for air conditioning, who do have access to university extension programs that can help farmers adapt to uh, you know, more protracted droughts or extreme rainfall events, um, who who do have access to potable water um, and will into the future. Um, so that that's kind of what we talk about, what we mean when we talk about how climate change disproportionately impacts poor and vulnerable people. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. And I think, again, like in our group, one of the things we've talked about, too, is like, I don't know, bringing that down to our level and looking yes. around even within our own communities, right? Like there are also disproportionate effects. It's it's good to look at it a global way, but also kind of in that local way, like that That's same right. dynamic, that paradigm that you're talking about comes right down um, to the local and regional level. So yeah. And, and, and one example of that, that's a really great point. One example of that is um, tree cover in cities. Mm. So uh, we know that the urban heat island effect uh, is is something, you know, when there's extreme heat, there are portions of cities that are significantly hotter than other portions of, of cities. And they tend to be urban centers yeah. because those tend to be the most paved um, and have the fewest kind of green space and tree canopy cover. Um, and, you know, parts of cities can be as many as 10 to 12 degrees hotter than others during extreme heat. And we've talked about how extreme heat kills more people than any other natural disaster. Mm -hmm. um, and when we overlay kind of tree cover and green space on top of housing uh, in a city, like who lives where, that's when um, things like urban planning, heat waves, and housing discrimination and housing policy collaborate to create the conditions in which poorer folks, black and brown folks tend to be in the hotter parts of the city and wealthier white folks tend to be in the areas that have more tree cover. Um, and, and that means wealthier white folks um, are more protected from extreme heat than poorer people and people of color. Um, so that's a really great point. And there are so many examples of, of you're right, how, how that injustice is not just felt at the global level, but right in our cities and down the street. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And thank you for sharing that example. That is something that I just learned maybe a couple months ago within our focus on climate change at BFJN. We had someone else on the podcast who works for a climate resiliency organization mm. and he showed me the whole, the map. And it was something yeah. I was like, again, it's one of those, once you say it, of course, that makes sense that tree cover with the with the absorbing of the heat, but I hadn't considered it, hadn't thought about it. And I appreciate your wording, the way these different things collaborate um, in order to make the impacts of climate change just be felt more severely in certain places. So yeah, yeah that's, that's tough. Right. it's a tough reality and it's an important thing for us to try to wrap our minds around. And it helpfully transitions into something else I wanted to talk about. Um, one of the other things we found compelling our group in your book was a lot of the practical suggestions you gave mm. 
And as we think about kind of our local realities and, you know, take it to a wider global scale, um, thinking about how do we begin to engage or how do we continue engagement? So what do you see as some important or impactful actions that people could take at different stages of the journey and depending on, you know, where, what their resources are? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So a few thoughts. One is there's a great organization called Project Drawdown um, that has done research and has empirical data um, laying out what the most impactful actions are, particularly for individuals and households um, as, as they're thinking about, you know, what can I do to make the biggest difference? Um, so that is a resource that I would highly recommend if, if you're looking for kind of what's the biggest bang for my buck um, as it relates to um, steps I can take in my own life. And, and I can tell you, like, th- right off the bat, they have a top 20 list for individuals and households um, I don't have it all memorized, but I, I know that the first two are related to diet. So number one, the number one thing that people in the U.S. and households can do in the U.S. to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions is decrease food waste. Um, food waste is a massive contributor to greenhouse gases, um, particularly here in the U.S. Um, so decrease your food waste and compost. Um, because when food waste goes to the landfill, it gets buried and covered up. It decomposes in environments with little to no oxygen, which means that it creates methane. Mm. That's why you have those pipes and landfills piping out the methane, um, which is a powerful greenhouse gas. When food decomposes in the presence of oxygen, it doesn't create methane. Um, wow. So don't send, your, don't send your food to the landfill, right? Um, for your, your food waste to the landfill, pretty simple, um, but really effective. And then the second thing is eat a plant-rich diet, Mm. right? Um, The the meat industry, particularly in the US, is very uh, carbon intensive. um, And you can decrease your impact a lot just by cutting down on your meat intake um, over time. Um, So those are kind of like the empirical examples of important steps you can take. And there are more. Uh, But I often share with people it's good to know that stuff. It's good to know like what, what are the most uh, impactful things that I can do. And it's important not to be a slave to that list, right? Like I, I share in the book a bit around how um, when I started becoming more aware, I, I like jumped in feet first and tried to do everything all at once. Um, And, and a lot of my motivations around that were guilt and shame and blame. And I got burned out really fast. Um, and so I've, I've come to believe that if we are going to be people whose lives are shaped by a concern for climate change, and if that's going to be sustainable, we have to find practices that bring us joy. Mm-hmm. Um, joy is an undervalued emotion in climate action. But it's so necessary because anger and rage and guilt are all helpful like sparks, but they will not burn long term, right? They are not sustainable. They will quickly burn themselves out. So um, I think more than doing the quote unquote most impactful things in your life, I think it's more important to find things that you enjoy, mm. uh, create, create ritual around these things, create meaning around these things, create community around these things um, and concern yourself less with 
you know, what is the most impactful thing I can do and concern yourself more with what makes me feel more human? Um, because mm-hmm. this is part of becoming more human, right? If we go all the way back to the creation stories, God created us as creatures in the midst of creation to be in relationship with creation and to take care of it. Um, this, this should bring us joy. Caring for creation should bring us joy. Yeah. Um, so find the things that, that bring you joy. Um, and then when you do, that's going to create the foundation and it's going to put your roots deep so that you can do the other thing that I'm going to recommend, which is long-term sustained advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be involved in the public conversation around climate action because you can be a vegan tomorrow. You can not throw out a single scrap of food for the rest of your life. Um, and it is not going to change the trajectory of climate of global climate change, right? Like nice. it's important for individuals to do these things because collectively it does make a difference. It's important for Christians in particular because it helps form our hearts after the heart of God, which is a heart for creation and for the oppressed. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's not the end, right? That that can't be where we stop. We have to create these practices that then sustain us for the work of long-term policy advocacy. Because if, if we're going to address the problem at the speed and the scale that science and justice demand, um, we have to, we have to have policy. We have to change. We have to change the answers that, that our culture and society has been giving to the questions of how do we heat and cool and electrify our homes? How do we get from point A to point B? How do we grow and ship and sell our food, right? Mm-hmm. These are big systemic answers to questions we've given. And the answers so far have been grounded in a fossil fuel economy. Right. But they don't, they don't have to be, right? There's nothing, there's nothing preordained about a fossil fuel economy. It's kind of an accident of history. Like the oil, the coal was there. We took it. We did amazing things with it, it should be said. And we've wrought un- unthinkable destruction, right? Both yeah. are true at the same time. Um, and we're going to need policy if we're going to answer those questions systemically in a new way. Um, so, you know, develop relationships with your members of Congress, write op-eds and letters to the editor, um, and like participate in, uh, be, a, be a poll worker during elections, right? Because we need a healthy functioning democracy if we're going to... Um, have the kinds of policy change that we need to see. There are so many ways to engage in that advocacy. Um, and again, just like my answer to what can I do individually, find the advocacy steps that you enjoy, that that make you feel empowered, that make you feel connected to your community um, and do those things. Um, and, and do those things as you're also practicing those steps in your own life that are also bringing you joy and delight and fulfillment, um, do both at the same time. Uh, and I think if enough of us do that, we could change everything. I mean, if, if we were calling our members of Congress every single day, um, all of us did that every single day, everything would change. I promise you. Um, we know what to do. We have the technology. We just don't have the political will. Um, and it's up to us to generate that political will. Yeah. 
That's great. I really appreciate that. that was a very robust answer that kind of lets us see the spectrum of the ways we can be engaging from that personal lifestyle changes to to the advocacy. And like you said, that yeah, it has to rise to that level. Um, I will say someone in our group, I think we told you when you met with us, she you you have a part in the book where you're like, stop right now and do this. You share really practical. Here's the number to call for your um your national representatives. And she did that. And that same member has also shared with the group, she's already written her like local, state, and national representatives with the the text around wanting more action around climate change. So that's been really encouraging to see. Um yeah, that she just took that and ran with it. So I think Amazing. that's great. And I just want to plug that in the book. It's very helpful and practical because I think for some people that haven't really engaged with our political system, it's overwhelming to think, how does that happen? Um, yep. And and in the end, it, it's kind of easy to do. It does take time and the will to do it, but it's not, there aren't barriers to engagement. Um no. And so that's really that's really helpful. Um, and I appreciate this idea of finding joy. I think that is really important for the that's how we're wired and made to to experience um fulfillment and joy but i think also like you said to sustain to live in a different way sustainably both with those personal changes and also to um become an activist and advocate it has to be something that connects with the way in which you're made um, yeah yeah and so i appreciate calling attention to that and that connects with kind of one of the last things i wanted to ask you about because as you're explaining this is this is hard work and it's big work and it's work around something that's really a devastating reality when you're steeped in it and begin to understand the impacts that have already happened and what might happen in the future. How do we find hope and sustain mm -hmm. hope? I think you, you've you kind of touched on some of that in your, in your previous answer, but where have you seen things that give you hope and how would you mm -hmm. encourage people to maintain that hopefulness um, as they, you know, take this journey? Yeah. So a couple of places I've seen hope. One is I have had the privilege over the years of working with a lot of young people. Um, and I know it sounds cliche at this point, <laughs> but truly like the, the passion, the effectiveness um, of young people gives me hope, but it's, mm. I'm, I want to be quick to qualify that and say, um, I often hear young people used as an excuse for the rest of us not to do anything, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, the young people will save us, take care of it. which is totally unfair because they're the ones who have contributed like nothing to the problem and the ones who have to live longest with it. So of course they're fired up because this is existential for them. Yeah. Um, I say them, I'm 34, like <laughs> me too. <laughs> you're, and my, You're the young people. <laughs> thank you. And my kids too, who are five and two. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, so that gives me a lot of hope that I, I see, I think we all see this groundswell of youth refusing to go away and mm. saying, um, you have to do something about this. Um, that gives me hope. It, another thing that gives me hope is the progress that I named at the beginning. Like um, in the spaces I grew up in, climate change was either ignored or, you know, scoffed at. And there's some of that still, but I think that's changed a lot. Um, and I think that's true in a lot of more kind of quote unquote conservative Christian spaces. Um, I have seen the conversation shift from, you know, climate change isn't real at all. It's all alarmism and a hoax. That's still out there, but it's pretty marginal now. 
it's shifted from that to, okay, it's happening, but how can we be sure humans are playing a role and to what extent are humans playing a role? And it's shifted even from that now, I think, to, yeah, humans um, are contributing to some extent. Um, and now the debate, uh, I think, is shifting to what solutions um, are there and what solutions can we employ, which I think is really exciting because that's where we've always needed to be. Right. We've, wasted a, we've wasted a lot of time debating reality. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why that is. Um, but I think we're finally slowly, too slowly, but finally getting to a place where we're actually debating solutions instead of debating reality, which yeah. I, I'm encouraged by and gives me hope. Um, and the last thing I'll say is um, I think it is so important to find hope and to hold on to hope. And at the same time, um, we cannot bypass grief or lament mm. on our way to hope. Okay. Um uh, there are things that have been lost um, and will be lost that we cannot save. Um, and there are people who have suffered um, and will suffer. Whether we stop emitting greenhouse gases today or not, right? Um, there, there is warming baked into our atmosphere that will continue for decades. Um, and so uh, I think our hope needs to be clear-eyed I think we need to leave lots of space for grief and for lament. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the, the, the biblical formula for hope, at least in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish formula for hope always moves through lament first, right? If you look at the, the Psalms of lament, um, they end with hope, but they don't get to hope until they move through lament first. Um, and, and I think especially in the U.S., there's a triumphalism about a lot of American Christianity that wants to ignore pain and grief and lament and move straight to hope and success. Um, and yes, we have to hold on to hope and we have to focus on the things that we can yet save, um, but we cannot do that at the expense of honoring and naming the things that we have lost and will lose. Um, and, and so I think uh, an authentic hope needs to be tempered by that grief and that lament. And I will say too, like, this is a long road. This is hard work. And when you're in it, there will be seasons when hope is hard. Mm. Um, and, and when that grief and that lament feel heavy. And I think one of the gifts of doing this work as the church and in community is that when I can't hold hope, you can hold it for me. Mm. Um, and when you can't hold hope, I can hold it for you. I think hope is communal in this work. Um, mm. and so we, we, as a community, as the body of Christ need to hold hope together, even as we also hold grief and lament. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. That's a really helpful framing, like very honest. Um, but also, yeah, hopeful. And especially I like the way you spoke about what it means to be doing this work as, as believers in community. So, yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you is just, will you tell us a little bit about what you're up to now? And if there's any ways our community can um, support or engage with your work? Yeah. So um, I have taken a bit of a shift professionally um, and I'm, I'm working now for an organization um, that is passionate about pursuing justice, um, particularly in 
communities um, in Honduras, but also here in the United States, um, communities that are vulnerable, that are oppressed, um, and bringing the hope and the light of Jesus um, to those spaces. Um, so it's called the Association for a More Just Society. Um, okay. It's an awesome organization. Totally recommend that you check it out. Um, okay, yeah. And yeah, I, I uh, continue to um, speak and teach on climate change and creation care too. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I uh, just uh, more than kind of how you all can support me. I, I just want to say like, um, I'm so excited that you all are having this conversation, that this is something that your community is running with and is passionate about. And like, however, I can support you all. Um, I want to do that, too. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I mean, your book has been such a tremendous help on our journey to understanding the realities of climate change and the ways we can engage. So I, for anyone listening that hasn't recommended yet, I, it's in my personal and professional circles. It's one of those books that I really think that all Christians should be engaging with. Um, and I'm just really thankful for it. So, um, Thanks, Elizabeth. And, and again, thank you for taking the time and uh, yeah, look forward to seeing what you are doing and, and ways we can, you know, connect again. Great. Thank you.